Hello, I'm Michaela Maguire, Artistic Director of the Sydney Writers' Festival. You're listening to a live recording from City Recital Hall at the 2017 Festival. Howdy do. Hello, everybody. So I am pleased to introduce Colson Whitehead. There is a huge list of of awards here. Winner of the MacArthur Genius Award, Guggenheim, a Whiting, author of six novels, including The Intuitionist, John Henry Days, Apex Hides the Hurt, Sag Harbor, Zone One, and of course, the novel of the moment, The Underground Railroad, as well as two nonfiction books, including The Noble (coughs) Hustle about poker. Colson, thanks for being here. Surely. So the last time I interviewed Colson was actually in New York on a panel, and there were four authors on the panel. The first one was Jeffrey Tubin, who uh, is a legal commentator, writer for The New Yorker. The second woman is a novelist, and then there was Colson, another woman uh, novelist. And to kind of open it up, I asked everyone on the panel just to loosen things up, and because we were speaking to students, and they're always interested in you know, how people got to where they were, uh, what everyone's first job was. And so Jeffrey said something, you know, about, I don't know, sell, scooping ice cream or babysitting. And then the next novelist, uh, the woman said that she was a stripper, had been mm-hmm. a stripper uh, before she was a novelist. And then poor Colson had to follow that. And I don't think anybody <laughs> knew, paid any attention to what his story was. So <laughs> this time, it, Colson does not have to follow the stripper turn novel no, yeah, with every answer. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So it takes a little bit of the pressure off. Um, the Underground Railroad specifically, I think, has, I think it's the only Oprah Obama novel out there, right? You got like the, the Oprah Obama. So far, so far. Yes. There's still time. So not only was it yeah. an Oprah book club choice, but Colson. Uh, was on Obama's summer reading list and uh, visited the White House, won the National Book Award, the Pulitzer, and the New York Times' best, 10 best books of the year. Yes, yeah. So it's a huge number of accolades. I want to go back um, before we talk about the novel and um, write, talk about an essay that was written for the New York Times Book Review in 2009 by a humor writer novelist. Um, and he wrote an essay, this novelist, about um, picking a genre and uh, wrote sort of up a few different genres that were possibles for an aspiring novelist. One of them was the Southern novel of black misery. And this was the description that this particular writer wrote. It was, Africans in America, cut your teeth on this literary style slip on your sepia-tinted goggles and investigate the legacy of slavery that still reverberates to this day, the legacy of Reconstruction that still reverberates to this day, and crackers invent nutty transliterations of what you think slaves talked like. But hurry up, the hours are getting closer. Sample title, I'll love you till the... Oh, till the... Gravy? I can't remember. It was yes. a couple years ago. Till the gravy's out, and then I'm going to lick out the skillet. Yes. That writer was Colson Whitehead. Um, Indeed. <laughs> so that was like our first, uh, our first indication that you were interested in this particular. Well, I guess that was, uh, you know, all sorts of uh, cliched books you're supposed to write. Um, there's the autobiographical, autobiographical first novel, 
where you get back at everyone who wronged you when you were a child. And I want to say that for my fourth novel, Sag Harbor, and did. And then if you're you know, a black writer, you're supposed to attack slavery. Um, you're supposed to write about the South. I'm from New York. You know, there are all these sort of books about like, oh, I'm walking down this road, I have no shoes. Like, I'm from New York, I had shoes all the time. So I couldn't relate to a certain, <laughs> uh, that literary uh, subset of African-American literature. Um, but of course, you know, I think, uh, you know, I've, I'd written seven books, and eventually you do have to, you know, tackle that um, uh, American history and how we got here. And so um, eventually when I felt up to it, I did my book about uh, slavery and race and history. You left out the gravy, though, so... Sorry? You didn't put the gravy in. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, before uh, I go into questions, why don't you read sure. um, a passage from the Underground Railroad? So, um, uh, the Underground Railroad is real in this book, not a, uh, a metaphor. And each state that our protagonist goes through as she moves north is a different state of American possibility, sort of like Gulliver's Travels. And I guess I realized over the years, when I would describe the book, no one knew what I was talking about until I said Gulliver's Travels, and people were like, oh, I get it now. So, uh, and so one of the states she goes to uh, for many years in my notes was called Black Utopia, question mark. And she finds herself on a, a farm run by, uh, two, by a, a free black woman and free black man, Valentine Farm, and they're self-sufficient. They live you know, a few miles away from the white settlement and have their own, uh, own thing going on. And, they, and runaway slaves end up there, they have visiting artists, and every Saturday they um, uh, have a celebration, food, and talk about the issues of the day. And in this section, uh, there's a conservative voice named Mingo who's given his idea about what's next for the black race. And then there's uh, Lander, who is a more progressive voice. And here is his spiel. Brother Mingo made some good points, Lander said. We can't save everyone, but that doesn't mean we can't try. Sometimes a useful delusion is better than a useless truth. Here is one delusion, that we can escape slavery. We can't. Its scars will never fade. When you saw your mother sold off, your father beaten, your sister abused by some boss or master, did you ever think that you'd sit here today without chains, without the yoke, among a new family? Everything you ever knew told you that freedom was a trick, yet here you are. Still we run, tracking by the good full moon to sanctuary. Valentine Farm, this place is a delusion. Who told you the Negro deserved a place of refuge? Who told you that you had that right? Every minute of your life's suffering has argued otherwise. By every facet of history, it can't exist. This place must be a delusion too. Yet here we are. And America, too, is a delusion, the grandest one of all. The white race believes, believes with all its heart, that it is their right to take the land, to kill Indians, make war, enslave their brothers. This nation shouldn't exist if there's any justice in the world, for its foundations are murder, theft, and cruelty. Yet here we are. I'm supposed to answer Mingo's call for gradual progress, for closing our doors to those in need. I'm supposed to answer those who think this place is too close to the grievous influence of slavery. 
and that we should move west. I don't have an answer for you. I don't know what we should do. The word we. In some ways, the only thing we have in common is the color of our skin. Our ancestors came from all over the African continent. It's quite large. Brother Valentine has the maps of the world in his splendid library. You can look for yourself. They had different ways of subsistence, different customs, spoke a hundred different languages. And that great mixture was brought to America in the holds of slave ships, to the north, to the south. Their sons and daughters picked tobacco, cultivated cotton, worked on the largest estates and the smallest farms. We are craftsmen and midwives and preachers and peddlers. Black hands built the White House, the seat of our nation's government. The word we. We are not one people, but many different people. How can one person speak for this great, beautiful race, which is not one race, but many, with a million desires and hopes and wishes for ourselves and our children? For we are Africans in America, something new in the history of the world, without models for what we will become. Color must suffice. It's brought us here to this night, this discussion, and it'll take us into the future. All I truly know is that we rise and fall as one, one colored family living next door to one white family. We may not know our way through the forest, but we can pick each other up when we fall, and we will arrive together. When the former residents of Valentine Farm recalled that moment, when they told strangers and grandchildren of how they used to live and how it came to an end, their voices still trembled years later. In Philadelphia and San Francisco, in the cow towns and ranches where they eventually made a home, they mourned those who died that day. The air in the room turned prickly, they told their families, quickened by an unseen power. Whether they had been born free or in chains, they inhabited that moment as, one, that, that moment as one, the moment when you aim yourself for the North Star and decide to run. Perhaps they were on the verge of some new order, on the verge of clasping reason to disorder, of putting all the lessons of their history to bear on the future. Or, perhaps time, as it will, lent the occasion a gravity that it did not possess, and everything was as Lander insisted. They were deluded. But that didn't mean that it wasn't true. I'd love to hear a little bit about the origin story of the novel and sort of what, what came to you first. Was it, was it the railroad? Was it Cora? Yeah, I mean, um, uh, it was about 17 years ago and I was on, on my couch in New York and I came across a reference to the Underground Railroad. Um, and I, just to, in case you don't know, it was a network of people who would help slaves uh, run north, black people, white people, and you would... Give them, you know, hide them in your wagon and go 100 miles, um, hide them in your cellar until the coast was clear, give them a ride across the river, and you know, people were sort of passed uh, by person to person until they got to the free states. And the phrase underground railroad comes from a, a really you know, sad slave master who woke up and found that the slave was gone and said, it's like she disappeared on an underground railroad. I don't know what happened to her. Um, and that became the term for it. And uh, I was remembering how, in, you know, in fourth grade, 
when I first heard about it, I, you know, I thought it was a literal subway. Uh, it was so evocative. And, uh, and then my teacher explained how it really worked. But it just seemed that day, um, 17 years ago, that'd be a weird idea for a novel if the Underground Railroad was actually real. And that's barely a premise. And so I quickly added the thing where each state she goes through is an alternative America. And that seemed like a really cool structure. Um, but I knew I would fuck it up if I did it back then. So I put it on hold. So you were coming off of your The Noble Hustle, your poker uh, book, when you decided to turn back to this? Or were you working on it at the same time? Um, no, it was after. I... Uh, Generally, you know, I alternate between books that are a little bit lighter, have more jokes, and books that are a little sort of darker. And I've written this book about the apocalypse, everyone's dead, and the poker book was merely um, a humor book for me. I was just trying to cram as many jokes in there, and the, the armature is that um, I had to go to the World Series of Poker and, and play poker. And so um, I had an idea for a novel, which is about a... Uh, it was about journalism right now and web culture... And, uh, that doesn't sound fun at all. It was about a, <laughs> and the, the voice of this depressed middle-aged guy was very much the voice of the narrator of the noble hustle, a depressed middle-aged guy making weird jokes. And so I didn't want to do the same thing. And I was, uh, um, wasn't sure what to do. I told, you know, my wife about the idea and various people, and they said, oh, the underground railroad, you know, that sounds like a good idea. And I think. Since I, I had used this voice in a book before, I couldn't use it again. And I've been avoiding this book for so many years that it seemed, you know, not to sound too self-helpy, but do the thing that you've been avoiding. Do the book that scares you sort of shitless. And I think when I had the idea 17 years ago, I didn't think I could pull it off craft-wise. I didn't think I was a good enough writer to do it. And then I, think, I didn't think I was uh, mature enough to do it. I was sort of like a... 30-year-old Generation X douchebag, not a lot of maturity. And I felt if I was a little older, you know, traveled the world, stabbed a hobo with a penknife or something, I might have these worldly adventures <laughs> that I could bring to the book. And so it seemed it was time. What was it in particular that scared you about writing this novel? Uh, pulling it off technically, and then uh, slavery is a daunting subject. I didn't want to... Um, do the research. I didn't want to sort of contemplate it in a in the way that in the deep way that it requires. Um, I think I'm not sure if Roots, the miniseries, was a big thing here, but it was a big cultural event when I was like eight, and my parents had us kids come out and watch it, and that was my introduction to what slavery meant and uh, my family's history. And then in college, you know, studied slave narratives and American history, uh, but coming. Um, uh, even though when I was 30, it seemed daunting, and definitely coming to the material as a grown-up in my 40s, um, you understand what, you know, at least for me anyway, uh, under, understanding the true vast depravity of the system uh, was daunting and scary. Did it have to do with what was going on in the, in the U.S. at the time? I mean, this is... When I decided to do it? Yeah. No, I mean, um, it was, you know, it was really me being ready to commit to it. I mean, two things have happened since it came out. I guess it came out in August. And some people would say, were you influenced by Black Lives Matter? Because um, I guess uh, for the first time, people were serving the news that uh, we have a severe police brutality problem, which is not really news to me as a black person growing up in America. You know, we have these really high-profile uh, abuse cases where, say, someone's shot in the back 
uh, by a white cop, and it's filmed, and then we talk about it for a little while, and everyone's shocked, and then we stop talking about it for a while, and then it happens again three years later. So that's my experience. So uh, it's, it's so much part of my experience that it would never generate a book. Um, and then after the election, people ask, like, how has, the, how has uh, Trump's election... We promise not to talk about Trump. That was the one <laughs> promise I made to Colson. We were not going to talk about Trump. So you yeah. started it. <laughs> yes. Uh, and it's, cha- it's changed, at least my interpretation of the book, because you know, I thought I was talking about right, white, nas- white supremacy and white nationalism in 1850, but of course all those energies are still around. And Did you have any trepidation about having a woman protagonist? Yeah, not really. I mean, I had one in my first book... Uh, and I think as a writer, you're supposed to attack different corners of the world and mix it up. And I'd had three very meditative narr- male narrators in a row, so it was time mm-hmm. to have a female protagonist. So there's that choice to just do something different. And then one of the inspirations, you know, for the book was a slave narrative by Harriet Jacobs, who um, uh, ran away from her master, hid in an attic for seven years before she could get passage out. And she writes about how they the dilemma of the female slave, like you're a slave girl, become a slave woman, and now you're prey to your master's desires, you're supposed to pump out kids, because more kids means uh, more hands to pick more cotton, more profits, and um, you enter into a new, more terrible stage of slavery, which is already terrible. So that seemed a worthy challenge to pick up, and I hadn't done a mother-daughter relationship before, so Mm -hmm. that was a good thing to try. And then I think, you know, all characters are, are hard, even ones that are very close to autobiographical or overlap with my personality. I think if it's easy, you're not really doing the work. And so, um, uh, no matter if their characters are close to you or far apart from you, you know, it always should be hard to get them on the page. Is it important for you to sort of do the work, to challenge yourself when you're working on a novel? Well, I think, you know, I'll have an idea. I'm like, oh, I kind of did that two books ago or three books ago, or this voice is too close to the voice I had in that last book, so don't do it. Um, I guess I figure if I can do something, why do it again? Um, perhaps that's silly, <laughs> you know? Uh, and so when I, you know, I switch genres a lot, and I'm trying to, you know, the hard part for me is like, what do I like about apocalyptic literature and the tradition, what I want to keep, what I want to throw out, what I find interesting, what do I like about historical novels, what do I don't like about them, uh, how can I do it my way, and then figuring out these new, the new languages and the new you know, uh, voice of the book is always you know, hard and daunting, but also a good challenge. What don't you like about historical novels? What did you sort of tell yourself, I'm not going to do that here? Well, I mean, um, it started from that, you know, this the oddball premise, so already... It's not going to stick to the historical record. Um, but I like making things up. And so if I had stuck with a, a very realistic story of a slave running north, I couldn't have done all the things I, I do in the book. I couldn't bring in uh, different periods of American history, European history, and put them in conversation together. And so I like the freedom of just making up garbage as a fiction writer. And um, but you didn't entirely make things up. I mean, what you did is you sort of jumbled together and juxtaposed things in interesting ways that did exist in some version of that in yes. American history. Did you find that, that sort of once you had op- opened that up, that there's, there was just an explosion of 
possibility? Was it hard to kind of rein it in and narrow it down? Yeah, I mean, um, a lot of things in the book, like stuff about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment or eugenics, I studied in college, and like my 18-year-old self was like, one day I'm going to be a writer and write about this. And so I had these different things I wanted to write about for, for decades, and you know, they finally found a, a form that could contain them. Um, and then in terms of reining it in, you know, I've, I've written books that are very loosely structured and very digressive and encyclopedic, and uh, you know, the kitchen sink is in there. You know, Sag Harbor has like three pages on TV dinners, which I think works and, you know, in the book. Um, but then you do that and you, you find different ways of, of uh, attacking the world. And so for me, I, I found myself reining myself in very early in the book and not being digressive and being um, more focused than I usually am. Uh, and I think there's just different ways of telling a story, but uh, bringing myself in uh, seemed to help the story along. And everything I wanted to put in there got in, you know, got in there. Usually I have like a, a file where I'll cut out paragraphs and uh, like one day I'll use these and then I'll never look at them again once the book is done. But um, I didn't have that this time, just I, everything, I, everything I wanted in, the, in there got in there. You mentioned a slave narrative that, uh, that played a part in sort of the creation of Korra. Did you read a lot of slave narratives in the research in the book? Um, I read, you know, uh, Frederick Douglass, another famous one, Harriet Jacobs. I flipped through, you know, Library of America book. And then my main, the most important thing I did was read the oral accounts of former slaves that were collected by the U.S. government in the 1930s. Uh, it was the Great Depression. You have a lot of writers walking around, more broke than usual. And so the government put them to work interviewing former slaves, people who had been kids or teenagers at the time of, you know, 1860s. And they're, and they're this, you know, for somebody who's trying to build a world, there are all the nouns and verbs and adjectives that you need. Um, uh, some of them are just like two paragraphs long, some are five pages long, some are ten pages long, some are about just farming, some are about master-slave relations, and so uh, that was really the most useful thing I did, was um, have this great chorus of people who survived somehow, and it provided, you know, the realistic details, and also just insights into psychology. Are those oral recordings that you can listen to, or are they transcripts? Um, I'm not sure if they're, I've only read them, I'm yeah. not sure if the, if the tapes still exist, and I think different researchers have different methods of doing it. In the course of that research, did you learn anything that fundamentally changed what you were thinking you were going to do in the novel? Like, did you th learn anything that, that... Well, it's stupid, but it's like, wow, slavery is even worse than I've been thinking about it. And then, of course, you enter this new reckoning of what, at least for me, what I'll have to put on the page to make it realistic. And then there's, you know, oddball things, like um, I remember coming across a passage early on you know, once a year, master would give us new wooden shoes. And then it's like, what? You know, um, this isn't Holland. What's up with that? And then who's the carpenter? Like, does he just wait, you know, all year for this big order from this plantation? Or does he work for a lot of plantations? Um, what else does he make besides shoes? And so all that stuff that ends up, you know, filling out the world uh, uh, is great. And, you, you know, you find yeah. it. And you, and you, and you think... You know, it wasn't just slave masters, and obviously, and people worked on the plantation who uh, were implicated, but carpenters. Uh, 
in the book, there are runaway slave ads. And so there's a guy at a newspaper whose specialty is writing classified ads for slaves who have run, run away. So he's implicated. And um, uh, realizing just how vast and uh, all-encompassing the enterprise was. I think there's something, too, that, you know, at least in the States, we learn about slavery in, you know, elementary school and a little bit in junior high and high school. Um, and you can't quite grasp what the implications are of the way in which people were torn from their families until you're older and have, you know, you're a family of your own. That yeah, that's definitely true for me. You know, uh, I think two things, you know, imagining my kids sold off and my kids seeing me beaten or their mother and, you know, coming to that realization, you know, coming to that reckoning in my 40s as opposed to when I was younger. And then, um, you know, I mean, so many people didn't make it through. Obviously, somewhere, some nameless ancestor of mine made it through, was it Alabama or Georgia, um, but they were brutalized and, and traumatized and, and killed. And then some of them escaped and made it through and produced me and my family. But um, so, reali so realizing that it was so capricious and, and you know, it's a fluke that this person or that person made it through, made it through the Middle Passage across the Atlantic, you know, chained up in the hold and realizing uh, how random it all is. Yeah. Did you feel while you were working on it, were you in a kind of dark place? While Not when I was working on it, but it was before when I was doing the research, like, oh, I really have to get all this stuff on the page and I haven't been this terrible to my characters. It's what people actually went through, my family. And so that was hard and, and very depressing. And, and then once I started writing, I, I found a, you know, a narrative voice that I think was useful. I think it's close to the characters, like Cora, but also a part uh, analyzing and, and pulling back and sort of editorializing about the world. And so that was a good buffer. Um, and then, you know, I'm done at three, and then I, uh, I work till three, and then I, you know, pick up kids from school or start cooking dinner, and it just felt very separate when I wasn't working, so I wasn't walking around with it all day. You said earlier that you alternate between sort of um, more uh, serious and uh, less serious work, but is this perhaps the first book that you've written that is really entirely devoid of irony and humor? Yeah, I think, you know, there's maybe two jokes, or if there are jokes, they're very sardonic and bleak. And I think with the last book, I, I, I put so many jokes in, at least I think they're jokes, I don't know if other people think they're jokes, but they're funny <laughs> to me, um, that I didn't have to do it this time. And then also there's just uh, um, the gravity of the material didn't make me, didn't put me in my usual sort of wisecracking mode. So it wasn't, it wasn't a struggle to keep the jokes out. No, like, yeah, I think it's a constraint that you choose early. You know. So I promised I wouldn't ask about Trump, but I am going to ask one question about Obama because Colson was lucky enough to have lunch with Barack Obama just before he left office in the company of several other novelists, including Juno Diaz, Zadie Smith, Dave Eggers, Barbara Kingsolver. Am I forgetting anyone? said Dave, Zadie Smith. Dave, yeah. yeah. Dave, Zadie. I'm curious, what did Obama want to know about your book? Uh, he didn't ask me about it. I think he said he liked it. Uh, it was, you know, I, I got an email in December. Uh, I thought I'd come to the White House. And I was like, who is this? Who's this hoax? 
People always tricking me. And then, but the guy seemed real. And basically we got there and Obama was just like, I've always wanted to have writers. It's been eight years, I never did it. In 10, in 10 days I'm gone. And this asshole is coming in. Well, he didn't say that, but um, I thought it was implied. And, um, and he said, you know, so I have no time left. So I'm just doing it. And it was very somber because, you know, we're sensitive writers and we're all like, is this gonna be all right, daddy? And he was like, it's not gonna be all right, and nothing I can do about it. Um, and so we were shell-shocked, and uh, I guess the highlight was that he was, he was gonna write his memoir, and uh, you know, he got really energized and, and, and happy thinking about writing his first book, you know, being broke. He was like in a shack on an island, and like, was very engaged, and that's when he sort of broke out of uh, um, the Obama you see on TV and was like, I'm a writer, and I, you know, I had a fun time when I was in my 20s, you know. Did you so, want to talk about the writing process? Uh, not process, but he's just like, what, you know, what are you guys working on? You know? <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he, um, said he, he said he couldn't do fiction because he didn't like making up, he couldn't think up characters. He's, he's leaving that to Bill stuff. Clinton, who's writing a thriller. Yes. So. <laughs> um, so this book has been out for almost a year. It came out in August mm -hmm. uh, in the States. Has anything about the reaction to the book thus far surprised you? Uh, that's been positive. Usually I just write these things and I'm like, like a month later. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, no, I mean, uh, for the moment I handed it in, it was going to like, even unedited to like booksellers, like Greenlight Books, just to get, you know, bookseller response. It's been really positive in a new way, you know, People who like my other books are like, this is really good. You know, the other books are good too, but this is really good. Not to say the other ones suck. They don't. They're good. But this one's, you know. Um, so that's been, that was sort of building. And then uh, people being very touched by Cora. You know, I think, uh, you know, pulling back. My first couple of books started off from like, what if propositions? Like, what if we updated this John Henry myth, uh, industrial age myth for information age or... And then I started, I think, think with Sag Harbor, I started think, starting a story with characters first. And so I think this book, you know, unites like two trends in my fiction, like the what if, it was real, the railroad, and then having a really strong character. And so seeing people respond to Cora uh, has been very gratifying. And, uh, and then you know, working on the book, you never know if this or that effect is working. And then uh, you're really proud of this section and no one ever mentions it. And it's like... So no one really cared What's about What's the section that you're proud of that no one mentions? <laughs> and, uh, and other books. And then this one, okay. people seem to be picking up on the things that I'm really sort of proud of, like the last 30 pages and, and uh, the order, the way things happen. So, Has the response been different in different parts? I mean, first, different parts of the United States. I thought it, it would. Like, uh, I, have, I, I don't get invited a lot to the South. And with this book, I was invited to the South more. Um, and they were really sort of really engaged with it, with the, with the book in a way that, for my northern prejudice, I didn't anticipate. And, um, and people say, like, is it weird, like, talking about slavery where there was slavery? And it's like, New York was a slave state as well. You know, uh, it was the whole country, basically. So, um, I think... Uh, I guess a lot of places, people don't have any black people to talk to, and so... In the Q&A, um, we'll talk about the book, and then someone will say, like, so when do you tell your kids about race? And it's like, 
I don't sit down and tell my kids like they're black, you know. Um, but people don't have an opportunity to, to talk about their elementary weird questions about black people. And so it becomes like this airing of like, uh, I had a black friend and he said I insulted him in high school. Was that bad? Like, am I bad? <laughs> I was like, ask your friends, you know, so. That reminds me of that, that Sean Spicer question at, uh, in at the White House briefing. Did you... No, well, I'm not sure which one you're thinking. Uh, this was a, a black reporter was uh, one of the White uh, House correspondents, and um, Sean Spicer, who is the um, White House spokesperson for Donald Trump, uh, she asked a question and he, um, he asked her about the, the House representatives who were black. No, it was Trump, he's like, yes, yes. and she's like, are you gonna meet with them? And he's like, are yeah, you sure, you're gonna set it up? And it's like, she's a reporter, but all black people know each other. So. Right, right, she knew all so. black people in America. <laughs> so the secret network. Yes, yeah, so. Um, um. Have you found different reactions among black audiences versus white audiences uh, in the States? Not particularly, not particularly. And what about internationally? Here we are in Australia. Um, did you wonder or think about whether this very American story in some ways would translate to other cultures? Well, uh, before I get into that, I want to thank Australia because um, my books always flop in England. And then... <laughs> For some reason, and like if you buy my book, you get fired like a week later or your publishing house goes <laughs> under. And then Zone One came out and like I got a royalty check for like a hundred bucks. I was like, what is this? Like I don't understand. And so I asked my agent, she was like, it's Australia. They just like the zombies. And so every six months I get a hundred bucks. So I just want to thank you. You know, um, you just never know how it's going to go over. And so with this book, I, I, I assumed it would have I've been published, you know, the same publisher in France, and I, you know, I flopped there too, but four or five countries in, in Western Europe. And then, uh, even before it came out, uh, a lot of other countries sort of picked up on it, and it's going to be translated to like 20, you know, 34 languages at this point. And weirdly, in a lot of countries, you were either like enslaved or enslavers. And so it, it, it came out in the Netherlands in January, and did really well because they were the you know the founders of the triangular slave trade. You know, start in in Amsterdam, go to Brazil or the American South, go to London, uh, carrying various freight, and so they were having a reckoning with their role. Everyone's in slavery. lucky enough to be involved in this. <laughs> yes, or if not slavery, then you know you're a serf, you're a peasant, oppressed by an aristocratic class in the same sort of way. And so um, it seems to have, seems to be resonating and people who didn't have the, the same specific relationship to slavery. So you mentioned uh, just then zombies. And I, I threatened when, when uh, we had a little pre-email that, that if I wasn't going to talk about Trump, I did want to talk a little bit about zombies and about Colson's previous novel, not his previous book, Zone One. Um, I don't know if, if people here are familiar with it, but I highly recommend it. Um, because that book, everyone's sort of expecting that this book is a kind of commentary on our times. That book, which came out in 2011, feels incredibly prescient and present um, today. Do you feel... Well, I guess, the, you know, my mental date for it was 2017, so now we're actually in the day where, where it's set. Um, well, I think, you know, there's, there's a cultural commentary I was doing in that book that is in some of my, some of my work. And so um, 
again, I think I, I, I think I did that work in that book so I could do something that was said in the past and not have to... Um, I think I'm kind of too old to do that kind of stuff. Like, I feel like really out of it. And like, even that book I was going to write about newspapers now and, and the web and how new media is changing, I just felt like there's probably like a younger, hipper, like 25-year-old who's probably a better, you know, uh, place to do it. Um, so, so I was thinking a lot, a lot about the culture in that book and that's, uh, you know, a, a kind of work I, was, I, was, I did for a while. You were you were sort of onto the zombie thing, I think, even before there was this whole wave of zombies in pop culture. That's yeah, I mean, dead I, and all of that. I mean, as a kid, you know, family bonding was watching horror movies, and I saw all sorts of inappropriate stuff. You know, when I was early, we'd watch like we'd just watch HBO together. Like I saw Clockwork Orange when I was like nine. And I was like, "Mommy, what's happening to that woman?" She's like, <laughs> "It's a commentary on society." Too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I saw Dawn of the Dead really early. I was like 10 or 11, and for every month for like decades, I would have like a zombie dream, and that was like my outlet for my various anxieties. They were fast or slow. They'd talk. They'd get me. They wouldn't, depending on what was going on in my life. And then um, I guess I finished Sag Harbor. Didn't have an idea for a new book, and. Uh, we were out in the country, we had guests over, and I was going through some life changes. Uh, I was about to get divorced. I think one of the hints was that I got a divorce lawyer, and that was like, told me that I was going through a life change. And then we had guests out, and uh, I heard them wake up, and I didn't want to go downstairs, and so I had this dream that uh, I couldn't go out into my living room because I didn't know if they'd swept the zombies out yet. And I woke up the next day, and I was like, oh, that's a actually a problem with the apocalypse. Once it's over and you've killed all the zombies, what do you do with the leftover ones? And usually when you have a dream and you write it down in the middle of the night and you wake up and it's like, oh, that's a good story. You look at it and it's like, sex with my mother. And that's not really a novel or anything like that. Um, but this one, I actually got a book out of a dream and it was really great. You had said that the, the ultimate zombie fear is that everyone is a zombie who wants to eat you. Well, I think, uh, like for me, like this, I have a very broad idea of a zombie. It's like invasion of the body snatchers and the zombies we know uh, from our contemporary movies. And it's someone you know, your loved ones, your neighbors, your teachers, uh, suddenly revealing themselves for the monsters they've always been. And so they look like the same people, uh, and now they're trying to eat you. And so that speaks to, obviously, psychological problems with me, but for me that's always been, uh, I, I think at the heart of it, it's like the familiar suddenly becomes monstrous, and it's always been monstrous, but you just didn't know, and you wake up one day and you realize the real order of the world. Well, that's why I think it was incredibly prescient, given our current political <laughs> moment, <laughs> sure. the zombies are here, but it also seemed um, to me very much a criticism or critique of consumer culture, sort of modern consumer culture. In that book, you have very specific descriptions of what everyone was wearing, eating, buying, um, what was on sale, that it was very much about, um, and it was extremely granular uh, in, in the detail. And I'm wondering um, if that was part of what you were trying to do. Yeah, book. I mean, that's sort of encoded in the early you know, zombie stories, Dawn of the Dead, the second uh, in George Romero's seminal trilogy takes place in a mall. You know, they, uh, you know, they're trying to escape, they lock all the, all the doors, and they live this artificial existence in the mall with all the stuff, and the zombies just keep coming and coming. 
uh, the slow shuffling hordes, and one of the people says, like, why, you know, why do they keep coming here? And another person says, like, they have nothing else. This is an important place in their lives. And, it's, and even though they're dead, their one dim dream is to come to the mall. And so that's an early <laughs> part of, of uh, the zombie mythos, which I, you know, examined. So I know you're a fan of science fiction, and this book um, is a kind of alternate uh, history, and also you're a fan of horror. I'm curious, and... Um, what function do you think these kinds of uh, stories play in our culture? Uh, I'm not sure in the culture. I mean, I think, you know, people like being scared, whether it's a crime novel or, or horror, uh, that cathartic thrill of um, being pursued, being chased, uh, uh, cathartic violence, I think, you know, has its, has its place. For me, as a, a writer, I think fantasy or genre is like a tool that you use for the, the right job. And some of my books are realistic, some of them have fantastic elements, and I think you just pick the right uh, element for the, the, you know, the story you're telling. Is it that these, these stories reveal what it is that really frightens us? And it, yeah, and, and in, in different periods, you know, I think the vampire, Dracula, Victorian vampire, has a different meaning uh, in 1870 than it does in, you know, the, for the Twilight Generation. I think you're, we make our monsters, uh, generation to generation, they encode cultural fears. We react to them differently in different times and places, and uh, they're really just metaphors for uh, who we are and what we're afraid of in ourselves. I'm going to go to audience questions in just a minute, but I'm going to save the audience uh, one question, which I know they'll ask, which is, what are you going to do next? Are you going to turn to the midlife crisis man in Brooklyn, or do you have something else in mind? Uh, yeah, that book's pretty dead. I, you know, I think it's doing a cultural thing I don't feel connected to anymore. Um, I was all set, you know, in the dark novel, you know, more jokey novel thing. I was going to do a nice crime novel set in the 60s. I was very happy. And then after the election, I was like, I have to do something. And I'm such a news junkie, I just like watch this news network all day. So in January, I was just like, I just take, take more time off. I was just like, I'll start working on my book. And it turns out writing about institutional slavery is a nice safety valve from actually confronting institutional <laughs> racism in uh, daily life. And so uh, it's, it's set in Florida in the 1960s, is all, that's all I can say. So you've moved from Harlem to Florida. You were in Harlem before. Yeah. Well, I have a good luck with this, these southern books. People like the south. Um, mm. But... Uh, with all this travel, not getting a lot of traction, but that's fine. So I have like 33 pages. Maybe next week I'll have like 34. <laughs> it adds up. All right. Well, <laughs> Colson, thank you so much. I want to turn to our audience members. With, I'm sure we all have questions. I guess there are microphones. Uh, yeah. There we go. Thing one and thing two. Hi. All right. We'll start with thing one. <laughs> thing two. <laughs> Thank you. It is a dark novel, and yet it is so infused with hope. Um, I think Cora is an irrepressibly hopeful character. Was that a deliberate choice? And were you trying to send a message or any kind of message to today's readers about how important hope is? Uh, not to today's readers, but um, you know, I think there's a link between Zone 1 and this book in that... Uh, in the ruin and the devastation of their lives, they have to believe that there's a place they can be safe. 
And for Mark Spitz in Zone 1, it's that human settlement that's just over the rise. And then you find a settlement and it's overrun and you find the next one. But you have to believe that there is a, a place of refuge or else you just you know, kill yourself and don't do it. And of, of course, to take that imaginative leap off the plantation to believe that there is a place in the north uh, where Cora can be free, you have to have that hope. And um, so that animates her journey. And in terms of you know, the plot mechanics, is frustrated by various false refuges. But um, in the midst of everything, all the setbacks and uh, bad things that happened, uh, for her to keep going, she has to believe that there is a safe place. So that hope does animate the book in her. Thanks for reading. Um, I'm one of the Australians who read Zone One, so you know, thank you for that. Uh, Thanks for your dollar, man. Yeah, <laughs> my pleasure. Um, and I, I came to this book having just read Zone One, and I think this might have coloured my reading a little bit, but one of the things that really marked this book out from other historical fiction I'd read was just how terrifying it was and just how kind of incredibly tightly paced it was as well. Um, did you find that your sort of work in genre fiction had allowed you to approach the slavery narrative in a particular way. And also, related to that, was it extremely hard to balance those kinds of genre fiction skills against the high seriousness of the topic? Yeah, um, for your last question, no. I, I, I was thinking about balancing them. You know, I've written books that are totally plotless, like Sag Harbor, and then books that have a, do have a plot or a stronger suspense structure. And it's just a different muscle, and, and I think just finding the right tool for the job. And so, even Zone One, which is about the apocalypse, not much happens, and he's walking around thinking about stuff. And I was making a choice there to go against, you know, the thriller. Uh, it's not so much, I mean, there are exploding heads, but that's, the, the general escape, escapes isn't the point of it. It's about, for me, it's about recovering from an accident. The world has fallen, and he has to figure out how to be a new person afterwards, and what do you take from your former life? And it could be 9-11, it could be recovering from a family death or... Uh, change in circumstance, but how do you take your old life into the, the new world? And, and, and since I did see a lot of its work being meditative and interior, uh, I went against genre conventions and slowed things down uh, sort of ridiculously in some, in some moments. And so um, it's really just finding that the right voice and the, and the right pacing for this or that book. I'm going to go up to number four up there. Uh, I went to college in the States, and I'm an undergrad, graduate, worked in New York City, actually. You, you kept referring, you kept saying black authors, um, uh, you kept referring to them as black, and I was in Ohio when I did my undergrad, and it was grilled into me by the African-Americans that you do not call us black, that's racist, you know, it, it's African-Americans. And I was very surprised, like, is it, has it changed? Is it, less is it more politically correct to say blacks now? Well, this is one of the questions, like ask a black guy about stuff. And uh, um, you, 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 you found a group of people who uh, are not representative. They were, they were pretty <laughs> full on about it. Let's just put it that yes, way. Yes, they were. And you, you found a small subsection of people who felt very strongly about it. But no, nothing has changed. Uh, African-American you know, became uh, more popular in the 80s, and we use them interchangeably. We don't use Negro, we don't use colored. Uh, but They only used to use it amongst themselves. God forbid if any of us even jokingly ever said that, they could drop the N-word when they were joking with themselves, but, I mean, us, they'd probably, like, kill us if we ever did that. 
Yeah, I guess you had a unique experience. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, I don't have a particularly insightful question, but I was just wondering what you were reading for enjoyment at the moment and whether you had a favorite book or a book you felt shaped you. Um, coming, coming, to, coming to write this book, re rereading Hundreds of Solitude was, was really useful uh, in calibrating the fantasy effects. Uh, a lot of absurd, absurd stuff happens, and so uh, it seemed if I could blend the real and, and the fake with a, with a straight face in a way that Marquez does in that book, it'd be useful. Uh, right now, uh, I'm a news junkie and my attention span is shot, but I did learn that I could read novellas. And so I've been rereading re novellas that I've read before, or new ones. Uh, so, uh, Mohsin Hamid's Exit West, a reluctant fundamentalist. Uh, I never read Ethan Frome, that was great. Oh, I love that book. Uh, <laughs> um, I reread re re Dennis Johnson's Jesus' Son, and then in honor of him today, I downloaded two of his novellas. So I think two books I can read in two hours, I can do that without checking Twitter to see what happened in the world, <laughs> how closer we are to Armageddon, so. Uh, did you say that you actually traced your own family history back, and uh, I wonder what their story was? What uh, I didn't say that, and uh, I, my mother's maternal line, you know, is very well-maintained, uh, so they can go trace themselves back to a biracial girl named Sally Madden, who was uh, an indentured servant on James Madison's farm. And I was like, really? Or a plantation? You know, usually, you never on someone on some no-names person plantations. Like, in a former life, I was like Cleopatra. It's never like Joe Schmo, the water girl. So like. But there, so that line of my mother's family knows everything and who everything was. And then um, I'm not sure where, where uh, other grandparents and great-grandparents came from. Since I've been talking and saying that, there's some genealogists in my family who have been like, the name Colson comes from two brothers who were in uh, 1840s Virginia, and they worked at a hotel and, and bought themselves out of slavery and then bought... Their kids out of slavery, and that's the Colson lines. But I didn't. I never was that interested in figuring out all these things for some reason. I'm not sure. Well, thank you. I apologise if this is kind of ignorant or clumsy, but the the view, the view we get of America is partial and slanted. We often get it through courtroom dramas. We've just seen the People versus O.J. Simpson, which is kind of an interesting counterpoint to To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, in as much as nobody comes out of it well, it plays like Greek tragedy. And at the end of it, um, Bob Kardashian, of all people, says in the, in the show, he's the first black man in history to get off for being black. Well, yeah, my take on it is that um, I thought OJ getting off was a great uh, triumph of civil rights. It used to be you had to be a rich white guy to get off for killing somebody, and now a rich black guy could get off for killing somebody. So... Um, <laughs> Looking forward to my future murder, I was very excited uh, about O.J. Simpson. But, yeah. uh, listening to you, it struck me how deep in the DNA of America uh, racism is. Um, it, but uh, unfortunately for a lot of white people, they don't notice it. You know, it's kind of unconscious, um, and they would deny it. 
And the same thing happens in this country, uh, in our history, um, the way you, you described at one point about, you know, how we destroy culture and enslave people and think we can just kill people off and use them. Um, it's kind of scary to think how that attitude perpetuates itself through history unconsciously. So here's my question. Um, you've talked quite a lot about hope. We've got to have hope. Um, so what do you see as the things that we can do to change that deep culture and to bring about that hope? What do we need to work on to make that hope real? Well, I think, you know, generally, you know, humanity is pretty terrible, but we do make these advances, you know, bit by bit. And, you know, Pamela talked about reception of the book in other countries, and, you know, many countries have their colonizing history. They were colonizers or colonized. And in the way that the Dutch are now thinking about their role in the slave trade, it seems that you guys are having a conversation uh, about the people you dispossessed and the land you took and acknowledging in different ways. And it, you make advances in it and uh, conservative voices maybe don't want to address it. But I think you start by talking about it and not, shying, not ignoring it. And um, uh, that's the first step. And teaching it an early age, you know, to uh, your kids. This is how this country was born. And it was bad. And instead of like, you know, when I first read about, studied slavery in fourth grade, studying slavery meant 10 minutes on slavery and then 40 minutes on Abraham Lincoln. And then we didn't talk about it again for like three years. Um, so instead of uh, 10 minutes on slavery, maybe 20 and then 20 on Abraham Lincoln. And then the next year you can make it 25 and 15, so. Yeah. Hi. Um, one of the characters that really stuck with me when I was reading it and even afterwards was that of Homer, this unsympathetic little black kid who was helping a white slaver. And I just wondered if he was born of anything, you know, organically from history or was he just another creation altogether? Yeah, no one is really based on any real character. And I think... You know, what would the book have been like if I wrote 17 years ago or five or 10 years ago? And definitely a lot of fantasy would have been much more broad. Uh, and then in terms of some things that I spend time on, they would have been sort of bigger set pieces because I was you know, showing off my Pomo skills. And so um, uh, with Homer, I thought less was more. And my theory with him was Homer's going to Homer. And the larger idea of Homer and Ridgeway. Homer is like the little assistant of the evil slave catcher. Um, uh, was that the master-slave relationship is very complicated. Uh, there were slaves who, upon emancipation, the end of Civil War, were set free, who stayed with their masters because they knew nothing else. They'd never been off the plantation. What were they going to do, go to school, get a job? No, they knew this one thing, and they felt comfortable there, so they stayed with their master. And perhaps sometimes they were paid, sometimes they weren't, but, and look, what? You know, that's crazy. And then there are slave masters who raped, tortured, brutalized their slaves, uh, which is what you did to keep them in control, who would swear upon the death of Bessie, who, you know, took care of them as, as a kid. Like, I love Bessie. She's like, remember the family. I whipped her ass. But, you know, she, I loved her like a mother. 
And that's another weird corner. And so, you know, in a Ridgeway Homer dynamic, I think there are all sorts of, uh, hopefully I'm illuminating one corner of that strange relationship. All right. Oh, one last question up there. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm just curious, how many phases of rewriting or repositioning or editing did you go through to get to this final copy of the novel? Well, I, um, I, I, I revise as I go along, and so I'll say write, pa write pages one through ten, and then uh, the next day revise pages two, five, and six, and then write pages eleven and twelve, and the next day revise like three, four, and seven. So I'm always going forward and backward and forward and backward. And if something changes in the book, if I get to page 100 and, and suddenly the voice really clicks and that's, this is how the narrator is now, I don't keep going. I go back to page one and bring up the narrator to the now prevailing voice of the book. And if I decide that actually the butler did it and not the chauffeur, I will go back and start setting that up, not just get to the end and then, like, and then fix things. And so I'm always going forward and back and forward and back. And so... Um, I never understood people were like, I did, I did 100 drafts of this book. Like for me, a draft, you know, you could like print it out, change a comma, then print it out again, and that's another draft. Like, you know, you can cheat there. So for me, uh, there are like a thousand tiny drafts as I'm revising, and then uh, when I'm done, I'll do one, one more big draft, and I'll do a copy editing draft. But I guess I, all my draft work is encoded in the constant rewriting. All right, we have time for one last question. Thank you. Um, Colson, I just wanted to ask you about the zombie genre. For a long time, it's kind of been an underground cult genre, and it's hit the mainstream in a really huge way. And I wondered if you had any thoughts about why it's resonated with the mainstream and why it's suddenly become so popular. Yeah, for me, I mean, uh, I told you my sort of psychological explanation of what it means for me, and perhaps it overlaps with other people. Um, uh, I'm not totally sure. I think in the same way that uh, I have my zombie, I think people who grew up and their first exposure was 28 Days Later, they have their different zombie. You know, people who never encountered a zombie text and come to The Walking Dead, they have their own different point of view. Uh, for me, it's about the everyday becoming monstrous. And I guess, and actually writing the book, I, you know, I stopped having zombie dreams, you know, <laughs> so I think I, I dealt with some sort of fear of people in that book. Um, uh, so for me, it's like the fear of the everyday becoming monstrous or the horribleness of other people or reality suddenly asserting itself after lulling you into complacency for 30, 30 years, 40 years. Um, I can't speak to what other people get out of it or why they're so scary. Um, they were done with vampires, maybe. Done with vampires, and I mix it up. <laughs> Next, werewolves, you know, you never know. Uh, but thanks so much for asking. And thank all you guys for coming out tonight. Yes, uh, there'll be a book signing afterwards, so Colson will be happy to sign books. And thank you so much. Thank you.